Um, it, it's it's wonderful to have Sandra Rodriguez back with us. Um, she, as many of you know, was one of our earliest um, fellows in the Open Documentary Lab and has remained um, part of the larger Open Doc Lab family. And uh, in addition, has um, taught some really popular courses in VR uh, for MIT students. Um, and um, we're just really pleased to have Sandra back with us for this hour and a half. Um, she is a uh, creative director, um, producer, and a sociologist at New Media Technology. For the last four years, uh, Sandra was founder and head of the Creative Reality Lab at iSteel Film, um, an Emmy Award-winning company based in Montreal, where she explored futures of nonfiction storytelling in VR, AR, and AI. Her work as creative director and producer uh, of Do Not Track, Deprogrammed VR, Big Picture, Manic VR, Chomsky versus Chomsky, First Encounter, uh, have garnered multiple awards, including a Peabody for Do Not Track in 2016, Best Immersive Experience at Infra Doc Lab in 2016, the Leipzig Doc Neuland uh, in 2018. Um, and oh, that was the, the Best Immersive Award was in all of those places, InfoDoc Lab, <laughs> Leipzig, Doc Neuland, and Numix in 2018. Uh, Best Storytelling, UNVR and World Economic For Forum Tour in 2018, uh, and the first Golden Nika Award ever given to a VR project at Ars Electronica in 2019. Um, so today I believe uh, Sandra will be talking about a couple of her most recent projects and um, please, Join me in welcoming Sandra Rodriguez. Thank you, Vivek, and thank you, Andrew. I'm really excited to be here today, not only because I get to talk to you guys again, and I get to feel like I'm part of uh, comparative media studies again, but it's been a while that I haven't set foot at uh, the department, and not just because of uh, COVID realities, of course, but also because right before that I was on maternity leave, and since everything has been virtual, so I really miss being in the department uh, and sharing um, part of the experiences that I'm creating or working on and collaborating a lot with either people that I've met at MIT or that I've met through people at MIT. Uh, so MIT has been part of these experiences and, and, and a either a very close relation uh, way or, or sometimes a little bit uh, kind of six degrees of separation way. Um, but, and I hope that uh, my keynote that I've praised so much before we start is not going to fail me now because I've included more videos. Uh, I arrived in 2015, as you were saying, as one of the, I think it was the second year of the MIT Open Doc Lab Fellows. Um, and I was arriving as a visiting scholar of the Comparative Media Studies Department on a postdoctoral research creation grant. My focus then was on big data and surveillance data and how we could create public installations that could open a conversation with the public about some of the ways the data was um, in a biased way analyzing us and how it left aside everything that is transparent or non-visible from the way we interact in public spaces. Uh, so that was my goal then, to really open conversations on big data uses, misuses and disruption by artists. Uh, and part of my uh, research was also creating, of course. These Endeavors have kept going now that I'm exploring VR and AI and in different ways. So 
uh, keynote, stay with me. <laughs> uh, some of you know me because of the class Hacking XR. As you've mentioned, since 2017, I've been teaching to uh, CMS undergrad and grad students, but also technologists, computer science students, and a lot of requests from students in architecture and design, who I think, uh, Elon can tell us, <laughs> but who I think you know are interested in this class because partly it promises things on virtual reality or augmented reality and how we can explore these new tools to uh, share uh, human experiences and stories, but also try to bring uh, focus on the critical aspects and ethical dimensions that come with exploring new media. So as I was getting ready to present today, I'm sorry, you can't see my little rainbow wheel spinning every time I try to change the slide, uh, but I may close my own camera if it will help. I'll just give it a, a try and if it doesn't, I'll try to see if it helps. This is a picture of the class this year. This was the iteration of the class this year. I'm not sure if Elon, you can find yourself in this image. It was a first attempt to try to use these technologies to uh, have a sense of presence together. And I'm happy one of the students wrote on a post-it note that VR is awesome. I hope that was the feeling conveyed that day in class. But I think it's not just about feeling that these tools are awesome. It's also about, at least for me, a mantra is to think about the way that we choose to use these tools. We're not just using these tools because it is a future that we foresee as inevitable, but we choose to use tools uh, to share human experiences. So my mantra is always to get us to think perhaps about why we choose particular tools, uh, why we choose particular affordances in these tools when we try to share and convey elements of our human experience. So I've had often opportunities to talk about my past work, as you've mentioned, since I've arrived at the MIT Open Doc Lab, I was invited to talk about uh, Do Not Track, which was really tr about tracking an audience uh, to show how tracking works, or uh, the Manic VR experience, was, which was about exploring uh, manic depression through virtual reality because we felt it enabled anyone to embody the emotions of manic depression instead of trying to explain them. So I've talked about these a lot, and these were projects that were uh, there while I was at MIT. But in parallel, I was also increasingly working with AI. And I've seldom had the chance to talk about this, except for a first time during the Hacking VR class, I think two weeks ago. Uh, so I had the chance to kind of test a little bit of the things I want to present with the students then. Um, but in 2016, I had just arrived at the MIT Open Doc Lab. I had been there for a semester. And I was approached by a researcher at CSAIL who had an idea about a project he wanted to do. So I'll get into the uh, origins of the project uh, before, but let's just say for now that Chomsky versus Chomsky is an experience that uses AI to talk about AI. So a little bit like Do Not Track did before or like my research creation did when I arrived, my goal was with uh, Chomsky versus Chomsky to try to open a conversation about the limitations, biases, potential pitfalls, but also opportunities of AI by using AI. And Futurites kind of does the opposite. It's, let's, you could call it the left brain, the right brain approach to things, uh, even though um, cognitive scientists would tell you there's no such thing as a left brain or right brain, but it's a bit of the approach to say, what if I could just use VR and AI as a tool, uh, not just to reflect on our use of AI, but maybe just to reflect on our sheer interest in creating with these tools. And I feel really lucky. I feel like I fell or slipped into two elements that I was just curious about and that happened to 
uh, grow exponentially, VR, but also AI endeavors and creating um, virtual and intelligent environments or entities that we can interact with uh, and experiences are now maybe one of the biggest promises of the combination of VR and AI. Um, and of course, it's, it's exciting to feel like you're at the cusp of something new, but it also you know, brings a red alert to always think of the promises and pitfalls of these tools and why, again, these are now enhanced over other media. Why do we feel they're more relevant today uh, than they are of other media? And again, for me, the answer lies in the choice. Why do we choose to make these more relevant? They're not necessarily more relevant. We choose to make the, these more relevant. I like this quote a lot and I've uh, used it a lot in class, maybe too much, uh, simply because I think it conveys well what new media artists or artists of emergent media do. Uh, they need to both contribute to the development of a medium. So try to see its limitations, see its, its uh, problems and inherent clunks and use these clunks and limitations to create from it and try to explore other opportunities or other possibilities. So it means that you need to act both as an artist that usually tries to disrupt a tool, uh, to talk about other things that the tool is not showing, and as a scientist to see what else could you create with it. So it's a little like finding, uh, I've mentioned to uh, Vivek and Andrew that my toddler is now 19 months. So she's exactly in that period, right? You show her something, she will break it apart and try to put it back together. Uh, that's a little what I think uh, artists in emergent media need to do all the time. But of course, they're not the only ones. This is a very famous quote. Uh, Our path leads to the poetry of machines. It's a Ziga Vertov quote, also known as David Kaufman. Um, he mentioned uh, in another famous quote, uh, speaking of the mechanical eye, my way leads toward the creation of a fresh perception of the world. I explain in a new way the world unknown to you. And these are discourses on technologies we use to share experiences that have been there for a while now with every new media we try to think of what else could it show about our human experience. And I don't think we try to respond to this question in a manner that is um, scientific. We're not trying to see exactly what it can show, but I think it stems from a desire we have to always inquire on other aspects of our reality that we find so hard, so untangible and so hard to share. So this desire to constantly share and constantly try to see in a new technology how it can help us share something different. Leads me to maybe a first segment of this presentation that I'd like to just settle a little bit of my background since Vivek, you suggested so aptly that sometimes it's welcome and uh, give a little bit of the background also of the questions I'm going to try to raise with uh, the two projects that I'm going to talk about today. And it's just the fact that when we talk about new tools, especially now tools that promise a virtual reality that is, uh, magic and seems to create an alternate ways of, of meeting, encountering, even uh, teaching. I think we need to always remind ourselves that these tools come with a materiality. They are connected to an economy, to an industry, to a social context, but also to specifically the hardware and software that they're made of. And reminding all of these uh, elements together helps us sometimes see that it's not new, as I was mentioning with the, with the Vertov quote, um, that we need to rely on the limitations of the tool to try to think uh, of a different ways to tell the story. So speaking of a bit of background, I am a documentarian uh, by trade. I, I the studied in film school. Uh, before I even decided to do grad studies, I studied in film school. And I remember then that I had a dual endeavor and that my parents were really torn to, to know if it was a good choice for me 
uh, to go into film school, which of course they didn't agree with because I had very good grades and was interested in engineering and wanted to really go into technology. But I kept feeling like both endeavors work really well together. I love film because it was a machine and through the machine I could explore how to tell different stories. And documentarians have a long tradition of thinking ethically about who gets to see, who gets to show what is seen, how do you share a story, how do you make it personal. I hope the videos are going to work here. This is a very old documentary. I'm saying very old because 2007 doesn't feel that old to me, but we still use DV tapes, <laughs> which is very old technology. And while it's playing, uh, the documentary was exploring how a small community at a, a little under 11,000 feet so um, the community is a very small community and they live on the ancient ruins of uh, an archaeological site that is wider than Machu Picchu, better preserved than Machu Picchu and completely destroyed because nobody really cares about pre-Incan <laughs> pre civilization anymore. Um, but the sheer fact is that this community keeps finding these mummies and they bring them back into the school and they created their own little museum uh, to remember uh, their direct lineage but also to uh, scold the children when they're not doing well in school, they need to sit with the mummies and the mummies have a real personality and reality uh, in their lives. Of course, what we loved about filming this, uh, this film was that there was no black or white, there was no truth or false. Everybody had very di different conceptions about who the mummies were, uh, with, you know, why were they so well preserved, uh, who, were we to trust to preserve them? The narco-traffickers in the area were the ones preserving them the best. So of course, for the archeologists, this was a problem. And I show, and I've shown this image uh, often simply because for us, this was an, a story that had so many facets that we had to talk about it. And we were trying to convey as best as possible the different layers of reality of the different inhabitants of the town. And while we were doing so, the town created their first Facebook page. This was 2007, 2006 was the beginning of Facebook. And these are the archeologists who were taking pictures of themselves and posting it on the first Rapayan Facebook page. So we thought we were trying to untap into one reality, but while we were doing so, they were also sharing these goofy North Americans coming with their cameras and equipment and just disrupting their daily activities as archeologists. Um, and they had a story to share. In 2013 was my last uh, traditional film. <laughs> so I'm choking here just because I can and I uh, not often have the chance to. So this was a documentary that related to uh, older men losing a lot of little bits of pieces of an important uh, moments of, of history, of Bolivian history. And that seemed to not be able to recollect anything that helped me make the movie. So I'm not sure if the sound is gonna play properly. Sí, 
Estamos buscando Villa Butch. Villa Butch, de ¿no? Yo creo que esa de Magisterio Y yo estoy convencido de que, de que ese no era el camino. Es posiblemente que el camino fuera este. Ever since I was little, I've heard these stories of hidden messages. With my sister, we would even plead for creating the secret codes my father had shown us. But I couldn't understand what were these messages. Tienes que te cuente las cosas o no. Pero siempre eso es verdad que te contaron. Todos los que estábamos en ese sitio apoyábamos a guerrilleros. Empezando por tu padre. So that story for for another invitation, but I was following uh, six six ex missionary priests. One of them, my father. Uh, who were all taking part into the uh, Guevara's uh, revolution in Che Guevara's guerrilla in Bolivia in the 1960s. And of course, it's what a story to share, right? But what we discovered was nobody really remembered what happened. Those that did remember what happened had Alzheimer's and everybody kept thinking that they were making it up. Uh, so again, it's just for me another snippet of, of understanding how reality comes in layers. And some of these layers are factual, some are felt, uh, some are made up memories, some are completely forgotten. And these are different layers that with technology, we can try to explore and convey in different light and different uh, meaning. So my understanding of Vertov's quote is that he's trying also to see how can I use uh, the reproduction of an image and editing of an image to convey some of the feelings of my daily senses. Uh, in that case, um, in parallel to uh, working and film and documentaries, I was also finishing a PhD where I studied uh, uh, making sense of social change among a, a younger generation of social media users and how they used uh, social media to create sense in social uh, activism. Weirdly enough, um, I was asked in 2017 again to revisit uh, this as part of a, a book. And I was told, you know, it's so still inherent today, a lot of the younger um, individuals interviewed as part of this uh, publication uh, were saying exactly the same thing the young people I had interviewed for my own PhD were saying. Uh, a lot of them understood social media as inherently built with limits. They didn't think it had the potential to create any change, but through the limits, they were also trying to change the way we perceived things around us. So it led me to think of a different type of theory on social change and one that is a lot closer to Herbert Bloomer's theory of the made in 1928 of social change. Uh, social change in his mind didn't always come as a construct. It didn't always come with, with organized forces. A lot of times it just came with small changes in social con and co-constructed perceptions. So I felt that a lot of the younger individuals that I was interviewing as part of my thesis believed in that power of using one of the limitations of the technology. It doesn't help you change anything but it did have one important affordance. It could be shared vastly. So if you could use that sharing power and that sharing capability to add small changes in perceptions, that was uh, then a goal of trying to convey social change through changing our perception of the world. And of course, um, these media have started to permeate our lives increasingly and increasingly. These uh, technological tools that help us track, record, uh, have our own take on uh, the world that has, we're perceiving it, 
and share it extensively. Bring new questions on the type of data that can be shared, the type of data that can be tracked and how it can be used again and again. So of course, this is inspiring to a lot of makers uh, because I wanted to introduce this, not just by introducing myself and my own work, I was inspired by other makers out there who are also used data points uh, just to show either nature, how uh, wind circulates in the United States or on the right, we feel fine, is a recollection of words used on Twitter. Uh, if people say, I feel, uh, as long as the words I and feel are connected together, uh, the data points show if Twitter users are feeling happy today or more nostalgic or sad or excited. Um, so I think it's just a lesson. I don't know if you can hear everything that I can hear from my window. <laughs> Do let me know, but it's getting warmer. So closing the windows, it's a little bit uh, too hot at the moment, but I can hear, uh, I think it's ambulances or maybe uh, uh, fire trucks. Um, the goal here is just to say that it's not new that tools inspire with either their limitations or try to convey something that they help us see that we don't uh, necessarily see through uh, more traditional media. In the case of artificial intelligence, um, there's so many to uh, unravel, right? There's, is it neural networks? Are we talking about machine learning? Are we talking about image or facial recognition? Uh, when we talk about AI, we seldom, we often talk about a wide set of technologies um, and not just one. So we have a tendency to uh, have to over-explain what AI is, but the real short answer is that AI is not one thing. It's an umbrella of terminologies of different technologies. And for me, why I'm showing these images is one of the things that it inspired me uh, when we're saying it can show you things that you haven't seen before, or like Vertov's quote, it can show you a world you hadn't expected. We keep mentioning AI or big data uh, can know us better than we actually know ourselves but it can show us other things. It can show a pattern in movements, for instance. On the right, what the AI is actually just doing is, is uh, creating images from patterns of movements that it recognizes. So it's not doing much, but it's still inspiring to see that you can still try to convey a sense of movement through something else than just data points. And for me, this was exciting. Um, so the conclusion of this first segment is just to say maybe that a new technology always comes with a particular set of affordances and they are simultaneously shaped by the way we perceive our world and our own bias as much as they shape the way we will perceive the world and perceive each other. So they come with opportunities and of course huge challenges. And how do we use them? So I presented at the beginning of the, uh, the talk um, two projects that I was going to talk about today and that I'm super excited to share with you today. Both projects are still in the making. One was uh, partly presented at Sundance. Uh, it was presented as a first chapter, but it's still in the making. And both are targeted for a public release in uh, spring 2022. So we're still in the midst of production. And that's why I'm so excited to share because you can see the glitches in the process instead of just seeing the end result. Um, and both projects have a different understanding of how we can uh, leverage the affordances of AI. Uh, the first really aims to open a conversation about AI, with AI, and through AI. It's a bit catchy, but I'll go into more detail about what that means. And the second project tries to use AI really here as a backbone, as an invisible backbone that just enhances our humanness, our uh, need for interacting with each other in these virtual spaces. So why a conversation about AI, with AI, and through AI? 
the initial provocation comes from the feeling that I, especially while at MIT, must I say, I felt there were a lot of discourses on AI that rubbed me the wrong way. Uh, rubbed me the wrong way, not because I didn't see any opportunities in the technology, but rather I felt like we were all drinking the Kool-Aid. We were told what AI could do, what was inevitable, where it was heading, uh, how we would need to get ready for it. And I just felt, isn't it just big data on steroids all again? And I had been working on Do Not Track since 2011 to 2015. It felt like a redundant microwave reheat uh, discourse, but with new sheer excitement. Uh, and I thought with any new technology, especially when it comes with uh, such a thread of potential uh, repercussions, don't drink the Kool-Aid. You need to have a, a level head and try to see the opportunities and trade-offs. But what I'm always curious about, maybe that's the little uh, disruptor uh, in me, it's to think beyond the plus and pro pros and cons. What is everything that we're leaving out of the conversation? What is it that we're leaving behind? And AI, as, as noted, is presented as a future technology, but it's already in our lives, right? From the series in our pockets to self-parking cars, to technology that helps us make deep fake videos of politicians, to this little gadget here that enables us to find Waldo in a different It feels like AI is uh, at the cusp of showing us great new potential and great new opportunities and simultaneously taking the sheer fun out of everything that we take for granted, for instance, the fun is maybe not finding Waldo, but trying to find him, you know, and finally succeeding and getting that little bit of adrenaline rush. Yes, I found him. Uh, it's not actually just finding Waldo, that's the fun. So at the same time that we're told that it can emulate the human mind, we also see a rise in pseudo AI. So tech firms that as the, the title here uh, says, quietly use humans to do bots work. And it's, uh, no, it's, it's not like a one-time thing. It happens on and off. Uh, if you're talking to, for, with a chatbot services for a company, when the chatbot reaches its limit, it usually uh, targets you to a real human that will help you out, but it doesn't tell you now real human speaking. So it's, it all comes in a, a conflation uh, where we are told that AI is imminent, uh, we need to get ready for it, we think we know what it means, but it keeps feeling hidden, hyped up, mythologized. Which brings us to think about what happens when you combine it to the next other glitchy thing, which is uh, VR, right? The next other, I mean, uh, shiny tool. Again, we're told that we're at the cusp of a shift in how technology will impact the way we live, work and play. Uh, but especially if we combine virtual reality with artificial intelligence, one of the promises is that we can finally get to interact with entities that feel real, that can answer back as though they are real, uh, that make us feel like we are in contact with a real human being. Uh, Soul Machines is a company that did great in creating uh, AI that was also um, uh, taught how to exchange through emotional intelligence. So try to, to understand the way our facial expression and even twists and turns and phrases uh, meant as hesitation and how to use that instead of just trying to convey a conversation based on questions and answer. Um, but again, we're just told that these virtual entities will make us feel as if we're speaking with a real human. Uh, MetaHuman by Unreal Engines is just now out, and it's a cloud stream app that takes real-time digital human creation, 
uh, or offers users to be able to create one. And once your character is finished, you can export and download it in Unreal, ready to animate, and it's rigged like a puppet. It actually feels to me a little still like a latex puppet when you see the way these characters, although they look very human-like, to me feel more like latex puppets than they feel human. And it's not, uh, I'm not saying this to try to say that I don't believe in AI futures or that I don't think we should try to extend these opportunities. Rather, again, I'm trying, and that was the goal of the Chomsky versus Chomsky project, to get us to think about why we're trying to emulate humans in the first place. What is it that we're leaving behind when we're focusing on AI as being a perfect replica of human encounters? Um, and of course, if we keep bringing back the specter of super intelligence and singularity, and if we keep bringing them forward every time we talk about AI, AI is made intentionally again, mysterious, uh, mythologized or, or out of reach. And so it doesn't help us all take part into steering its future. Uh, I felt like with a clear-eyed viewed conversation on AI, you can really start leveraging its real affordances and not fall into the trap of either fearing it or enhancing it. And Chomsky versus Chomsky hopes to do just that. So um, it had a lot of different partners, but it started, and the real production started in 2018, uh, but the real endeavor started back in 2016. There was a postdoc researcher at CSAIL Yard and Cats who approached me while at the MIT Open Doc Lab uh, with a great idea. He said he had found a way to map the brain of Noam Chomsky. So of course that's a pun and it's kind of a, a catchy approach, uh, but his idea was really, really smart. He gathered that if he could himself gather enough data about the famous intellectual, he could easily find patterns in the way he spoke and the way he used hand gestures um, he also found that uh, Noam Chomsky had a very robotic manner to him that with only a couple of words, you could prompt similar answers uh, from one you know, journalist interview to the next. And so in a way he could replicate the way he thinks, or at least try to map out the way he thinks and how word connected to feelings and connected to gestures. Uh, and of course, I thought, are you trying to robotize Noam Chomsky? And I asked Yard and Katz, are you trying to make him into a replica? And Yarden responded um, with a lot of transparency. Of course not. I've spoken already to Chomsky about this and he would never agree with this. And I thought, well, isn't that strange and a very ironic proposition to try to map the brain of somebody who fundamentally disagrees with the fact that you can actually replicate the way he thinks. And since then I've been um, told that yes, it's true that Noam Chomsky is one of the, has one of the largest digital footprints available. Uh, he has hundreds of thousands of videos, pictures, recordings that are uploaded online, but he also gives everything free of rights, uh, which means that it's easily uh, shareable, usable, and reusable. He becomes a perfect case study to try to deep fake him or trying to replicate the way he speaks, the way he uh, has gestures or um, moves. Uh, but he, I thought, also becomes the perfect guide into questioning our endeavor into recreating and emulating other human beings. Uh, so Yarden Katz and myself didn't agree necessarily on the way to do so. He still believed making a film about uh, this endeavor was uh, more prevalent. I felt that maybe we needed to reach out to Chomsky and see why he would have disagreed in the first place. And so I did. I reached out to Chomsky, reached out to his it's not the right word for it, but for lack of a better uh, synonym in English, uh, his entourage, 
um, his liaisons for public relations, and we discussed uh, the fact that my goal was really to try to understand why Noam Chomsky was labeled as anti-artificial intelligence, where I had heard him say in an interview that he feels he has been doing artificial, working on artificial intelligence all his life and that nobody seemed to mind. So I thought, I think he has a lot of things to say. And it's true that one of Chomsky's famous theory on natural language is also very partly at the basis of natural language processing, right? For those at MIT, it was created both in the same, in the same buildings and there's a lot of talks in the hallways that inspire each other. Uh, and natural language processing or natural, even natural language theory explained way too simply suggests that we all have inside a sort of system that allows us to use finite blocks of ideas or of, of emotions or meanings and reconstruct and recombine them to create new meanings. And that's how humans are endlessly creative. We recombine these blocks of meanings at creating new meanings each time. But here's the catch. In all of the interviews, it's as part of the research, I tried to listen to every Noam Chomsky interview that closely or uh, by far related to artificial intelligence or machine learning or cognitive uh, replications of the mind. And here's the great catch. I think what, where he is repetitive is that he keeps insisting and reminding us that we know very little about the mind, if and almost nothing about the way our brain works. So he, he prompts a question that I think is really relevant that he keeps repeating and it's, it's not that AI fails us, it's that we need to decide what metaphors we're willing to accept for ourselves and which you aren't. And for me, it brings us back to the main uh, point of the conversation. If we're not really knowing what we're replicating with AI, uh, what are we leaving behind? What is it that we're not seeing about ourselves that we're not taking into account when we're trying to replicate the way we communicate? So of course it's very meta, it sounds very intellectual and very uh, high level, but the experience aimed for exactly the opposite. We wanted it to be fun, funny, quirky at, at a very uh, Malkovich, Malkovich kind of uh, approach and uh, very strange. So uh, bear with me for this little uh, video. It's a little trippy, but it's our trailer for the experience that was presented at some. I have been asked questions for my life. Everybody wants to know. Defining intelligence is a colossal problem, way beyond the limits of our understanding. We have to be humble. We really are in a pre-Galilean stage. We don't know what we are looking for any more than Galileo did. There is an instinct for freedom at the core of human nature, to inquire, to create. You are the countless number of people, the driving force in history. It is up to you to decide. You can duplicate me. But the question is, is myself actually myself? Is the sound very bad just for me or is it also very bad for you guys? The sound is okay? So-so? I can hear it like very choppy. <laughs> so I keep, if I keep grimacing and going like this just because I'm not sure what you guys are hearing. Um, ah, yes, so the experience didn't aim to make us either fear or embrace AI, but ask questions. 
Um, it's not aimed as a didactic or intellectual experience, but we wanted people to question, try to break the system, try, try to inquire how it worked, and in doing so, discover little snippets of information about how AI work and especially how our own brain works. Um, so I like this quote by Noam Chomsky a lot because he kept insisting we are really are at a pre-Galilean stage. It's not that we can't get to a certain point of AI, it's that we don't know what we're looking for any more than Galileo did. So for me, this is not uh, depressing or optimistic. It's enthralling. It's the clear-eyed view we need to kind of move forward. And of course, to create the experience, uh, MIT archives gave me access to their incredible Noam Chomsky special collection, where you can find so many of the speeches that Noam Chomsky first writes uh, by hand before he has them typewritten. And amongst the messiness of how humans take notes about what, how they're preparing to uh, talk publicly about different subjects, you can see some of the, you know, human lives seep in. Uh, so I know that he has grandkids. I'm not sure if he was drawing for a grandkid at that moment. I can see coffee stains. Uh, I could see notes and things to skip when you think you're um, talking too much or too long about certain elements. All this messiness is what creates our human experience. So we try to create, I'm saying we because I didn't create the experience by myself, of course, I have a vast team working uh, with me that I'll present in a little bit. But we worked both from the real archives to get a sense of how Noam Chomsky speaks, some of his um, uh, notes that keep re-insisting, you can see by his handwritten notes, things that he keeps insisting on that, he, that feel really relevant to some of the messages that he has been conveyed over and over in over 60 years. But we also had access to a vast library of archive through Chomsky.info. And Chomsky.info is simply a repository of Noam Chomsky talks that fans you know, personally uh, transcribe, and some of them are transcribed by apps, but it's all there, it's all free of access, and we decided to just try to use this as our first initial data. And we ended up with hundreds of thousands of questions asked to Chomsky and hundreds of thousands of answers given by Chomsky to the said questions. And this helped us create the backend system. Um, so the backend system works with using different tools that are labeled AI. One of them is uh, creating speech-to-text and text-to-speech to have a sort of a chatbot. Um, that chatbot also uses algorithms to predict questions, a user's question intent, content and effect, and gives it a score. But that score we made visible at all time to the user. So when you spoke and asked question to Noam Chomsky, or pardon, Chomsky AI, you could see how it related to real Chomsky questions or answers, uh, how it related to understand your own question, your own intent. And a lot of the time the system fails, but I felt presenting this to the public was fun enough already that you keep trying to see where else would it fail. And you try to make the system fail just so you see how it will derail. Uh, and then we used a customized Microsoft Azure called Lewis, Natural Language Processing Model, and we made our own, uh, a complex conversational chatbot model called Arnold. So in a nutshell, because it can be a little bit uh, either way too simply explained for somebody who specializes in AI <laughs> or uh, way too technical for somebody who doesn't really uh, want to hear about all the backend possibilities and how it works. Uh, what I think is useful to know is simply that when you would ask Chomsky AI a question uh, from the score of the system, the system would then choose which of three conversation mode it, choose, it chose its answers from. Either if the, sim the question was uh, 
very, very accurately related to a theme we wanted to highlight in the experience. It went into scripted mode. Uh, either it was a chit chat conversation, then it could be pulled either from real Noam Chomsky conversations on where there, or when the questions were a little bit more complex, we would recreate a Chomsky AI question from a pool of real Chomsky answers. And it became even a little bit more complex. It now becomes a little bit more complex. We presented this at uh, Sundance with two goals. A, introduce the character, Chomsky AI, and two, test the types of questions people were asking and how they were responding to Chomsky AI. From this, we're now creating this new model. And this new model is, again, a bit complex to explain. We're, we've called it Arnold. All the names that are already given to these uh, natural language processing systems are called Lewis, Bert, Ernie. And we thought it was kind of Bert on steroids. So we called him Arnold. I'm not sure if it's fully ethical to, <laughs> to name him that. But uh, we decided that uh, we felt we wanted to play with how much we could push it. But the goal is always to show to the user what the system is doing at all times. And of course, it becomes really funny to work with teams. I've mentioned the teams that I was working with. So in part, we worked with two German studios, Schnellebentebilder and Kling Klang Klang in Germany, sound and design studio, who helped us create a world, a virtual world um, why VR simply at the beginning because it was easier to test how people would interact with the space and to actually find ways to recreate this space uh, physically. So VR helped us to have a first quick prototype to test. And with the designers, we created a world inspired by nature, inspired by birds, and inspired by uh, wind and water sounds that don't exist. So we had an AI system recreate all these bird sounds uh, from scratch. The music is also composed by an AI system. So again, I wanted to explore that tension and friction. On one end, we have Chomsky AI that keeps telling us and warning us about the pitfalls and limitations of AI's own creativity. And at the same time, we're using it in the back end to create the score of the music, create the world, create the birds that inhabit it, and just try to give it a, a feel that's purely created by the AI system. I worked with Cindy Bishop, who was also a fellow at the MIT Open Doc Lab and used to work at MIT Civic Media to try to think of the best way to combine the front end with the back end. And we created the back end with a company based in Montreal called Move AI and the National Film Board of Canada. And we insisted on not creating a deep fake uh, because of the many questions and ethical questions we had with it. What we decided to deep fake is simply the manner in which uh, Chomsky AI speaks. So the croaks in the voice or the types of uh, pitch of his voice. So you can hear, hear, uh, hear, hear. <laughs> That's not so easy for a Francophone. <laughs> you can hear, hear uh, how, how that feels. You can hear the little croaks of voice that are, you know, from an older Chomsky, but then the ways he speaks. And we try to recreate, uh, sorry, my keynote is running a little bit low, but an experience that on one end help us at different steps um, interact with the system. And then from time to time, Chomsky AI would pull us into uh, what we call monologues. The world would change around him. He would pull us into his world and talk to us and show us either how uh, AI systems run on data, uh, give us a peek into how natural language processing works, 
how algorithms are biased and tap into questions on deepfake or emulation of the human mind and why we're so obsessed with it. And at the same time, that's my endeavor um, um, as a creator and not uh, letting the machine run fully freely. Uh, what I wanted the, the full experience to really embody are three things that through my research of Noam Chomsky's archive, I realized are three of his essential messages and legacy that he's left. Uh, trying to highlight the fact that our, the way our minds work is not that different that, than other species. What makes it perhaps unique is a trifecta of need for inquiry, a need for cooperation, and a need for creativity. And if the experience can make us feel that, and that's the goal for the next phase that we're now in production of, um, we feel we would have succeeded. So what we presented as Sundance uh, enabled us to test the types of questions uh, users were asking. And it went from full chit-chat questions like, how are you? Uh, where are you right now? And Chomsky AI would always bring us back to understand that he's no, not Noam Chomsky, that he's an emulation of Noam Chomsky, that he's made of data. Uh, and we had other maybe more, um, not sure why it's not showing me. Sorry, you can see my little rainbow wheel <laughs> going here. I'm just trying to convey some of the questions. We had questions like, uh, do you think Trump will win the elections again? Or what do you think of the Pol Pot regime? Uh, we had questions on uh, what will end the world and questions on our human intelligence is it different from animal language? Uh, so we had very, very, uh, chit-chatty questions and very specific questions. And that's what we were hoping to get from a very diversified public. We were hoping to see how they would react to an entity. To our biggest surprise, and perhaps what made us most happy, sorry guys, uh, it's stuck <laughs> and not wanting to uh, get to the next slide. And I see time running and I wanna talk about the next project. <laughs> But we were very excited and happy. We got feedback and now I feel like it's feels like I'm boasting, but I want to share this as lessons to learn from people interested in combining AI or creating AI-driven entities. We got amazing feedback on how uh, meaningful the conversation felt. So we had people specialized in technology that asked us specifically how we made the backend work, how it, it knew exactly how to respond, and I thought, well, the real answer is in scripting. The real answer doesn't come from the machine. The real answer came from my human capacity to predict the types of questions that you will be asking and to predict the types of fallback to answers to these questions that would feel meaningful. Um, now, that's what I love about creating uh, this type of work. I work with AI uh, technologists and architects for the backend. Move AI are specializing in exactly this and creating chatbots. And they come with potentialities and possibilities that they work hard on. Uh, and when you test the system, the conversation feels meaningless. And there's a reason for that. It drives modules of blocks of ideas, exactly like natural uh, language theory did or explains. It brings these blocks of ideas together, but it lacks context. So how can scripting work? Well, scripting creates a character. And the character Chomsky AI has a will of its own. So it can fall back some of these questions that users have. Sorry, we're really stuck on this slide. I'm really trying hard to get it to move. Maybe if I cut my camera for a second, it will enable us to get 
to a next slide. Maybe if I stop share and try to resume sharing again. Are you guys still with me? Yep, we're here. <laughs> I'm going to try sharing again. Okay, let's go here. Aha, I was trying to get to this uh, first lesson that we've learned from the experience is that a conversation is not a service. What I mean by this is every time that I do work with AI architects, the goal is to try to create a service that can answer all your questions, understand the context of your question and answer to its best of capacities. And for the research for this experience, I had the chance to try a lot of chatbot services or chatbot experiences, even creative experiences. And I felt that uh, the character is always portrayed as somebody willing to help you, answer you, or feels a little bit at your service, where we felt we found something to share. So again, it's not to boast about what we created, but so many people responded very positively when the answers were fully scripted. But we, what we scripted the answers with are real quotes from Noam Chomsky, where he prompts us to think about why we want to ask these types of questions. So these were fallback answers. For instance, if a question was specifically asking about politics, he would bring back a monologue about you know, I'm always asked about politics and I'm always asked about politics, maybe because you're trying to find in my system an answer that you're trying to find for yourself, you know. So he kept showing us the limitations of its own system, telling us what he couldn't do and trying to help us think about why we wanted him to have all the answers to everything. And people felt that was the meaningful conversation. So first lesson is that a conversation is more than a service, it's a relation, it comes with a character, and if you can feel empathy for that character, you feel like the conversation is more meaningful. Uh, a second lesson was reassessing what drives our desire to share with an entity that's virtual. Why do we want to talk to this virtual entity at all? Uh, first thing is we want to test the limits of the system, we want to game it, so that's why we react and try to interact with it. But little hint, we're actually really good at make-believe. Humans are great at inventing worlds and we want to inhabit them. So what really helps us is our unique human need and desire to share with a magic world. We want to be part of these magic worlds. So it's not just the promises of the technology, but the promise of the make-believe, the power of make-believe that we have. And the third lesson is we never let AI drive the experience. Whenever we did, the experience became boring. Uh, it, it's really users that have the storytelling power. They choose where they spend most time in asking questions and receiving answers, or they want to listen to Chomsky more, and we fall into these uh, linear, more linear narrated uh, discourses that help us discover more about the legacy of Noam Chomsky, and not just be with a kind of gimmicky chatbot of answer and questions. Uh, I'm not sure about the time because I've lost some time with the slowness of my presentation. Do I still have a, maybe five to 10-ish minutes to talk about this other yes. project? Absolutely. Because I, I can do it fast, <laughs> but I wanted to know how, how soon I should finish or not. No, um, that's good. Five to 10 is fine. But so 
if I put in a nutshell this whole experience of, uh, of Chomsky versus Chomsky, it highlighted a lot of the limitations of AI. It really tried to bring this clear-eyed view that I presented at the beginning um, of what the technology actually does to retrieve some of the answers, how it works, see the, the accuracy percentages go. The more questions user asks, the more the percentages lower. And that is, it was a surprise to me. I didn't know that's the way it works, but a system will learn from a lot of different users using it, but the more users use it, the less its answers are accurate or feel accurate. So it's a little bit of a cat 22. Um, and so the system did exactly just that. Noam Chomsky showed us all its limitation and the more questions we're asking, the more it would derail. And he would, he would tell us the more you're trying to get answers from me, the less I can actually give you correct answers. Um, and for me, this was really inspiring to tap into other things that I couldn't with this project. That was beyond the scope of this project, but it showed me boundaries, clear boundaries for um, AI. And I felt boundaries could really be seen as an invitation rather than a limitation. Some of these boundaries were that we were able to create a world, music, uh, bird sounds with deep faking um, data that we found online. Um, and it made me think about our relationship with nature in a world, especially uh, now in a world where we feel we're overwhelmed with understanding how we can assess some of the issues. Uh, we get more data than ever about what's happening and we don't know how to tackle our relation, current disrupted relationship with nature. And while I was thinking of some of these issues, uh, I, was, uh, I met with Alexander Whitley uh, he was visiting Montreal. This was right before the confinement and right before my maternity leave. Uh, and we were just discussing the sheer possibility that one day we're going to just let ourselves loose and use AI to create a dancing experience. And we didn't exactly know what the experience would be about, but we knew it was going to be about dance. Alexander Whitley is a UK-based um, choreographer. Uh, he is the founder of the Alexander Whitley Dance Company, and they have been known for using technology and dance and live performances. And we both came from a, a similar endeavor, but a little bit different. For me, it was all about maybe not using so many words like I've had in this presentation, maybe just let our, our bodies tell the story. Try to see exactly what I was not able to showcase where the Chomsky versus project was all text-based and voice-based and do exactly the opposite. I could see how people were interacting with the, the entity throughout the, the test of the prototype uh, people were getting close to it, getting back. If the shape kept morphing, they played with it a lot more. If the shape would calm down, they would calm down as well. We had nature-inspired environment. When the nature-inspired environment grew, people tried to see how they could affect it. All these little snippets of understanding users' movements in space made me think, what if we could have an opportunity to use data and AI to analyze these body movements and use these body movements to help us guide an introspection on how we interact with nature when it's virtual or real. And on his end, Alexander Whitley thought, you know, there's a classic work of art. He was trained at the Royal Ballet and he thought there's a classic work of art that every choreographer wants to tackle. It's not accessible to the wide audience and it's so relevant today with uh, what's happening in the world. And that, that work is the Rite of Spring. So Future Rights is a multi-user immersive dance performance based on uh, an unforeseen adaptation story of the Rite of Spring. And Fred would use real-time animation, mocap data, and artificial intelligence really as this time the backbone. 
it's what makes the magic of the experience. It's not the theme or the goal of the experience. And Rite of Spring is uh, Stravinsky's famous and controversial work of art. It's one considered by many as one of the most controversial, sorry, I can't say that word in English, controversial work of art of the 20th century. Uh, it's considered by others as the gateway into the modern era. Uh, it premiered in 1913 at Théâtre de Champs-Élysées and sparked riots between different classes of Parisian goers um, because of different elements. Uh, music that broke with rules in depiction of how rhythm was supposed to fall. There is no real rhythm. It's not a, a music you can really dance to. Uh, but yet it's so narrative that it's been reinterpreted by Pina Bouch to Walt Disney. So in very different light and very different forms. Uh, I'm talking to you about Rite of Spring now, and you may not know what it is, and I'm pretty sure when you'll hear the score, you'll recognize it. But the untamed energy of Rite of Spring um, really wanted to push the idea of innovation, understanding movement in a different light. And we thought, well, we have a technology now that helps us rethink it in a different light. And it was an uncanny coincidence. Uh, Alexander Whitley and myself were both confined and suddenly stuck not being able to uh, travel to Montreal or to London to co-create this project. Uh, but he, we had the uncanny chance that he was confined with a motion capture suit, which doesn't happen every time, but he is the brother of Nell Whitley from Marshmallow Laser Feast, for those of you who know uh, the company, and they were all um, in, a, in, in confinement together and they all brought their motion capture suit. So we had movement data and we started to test how we could interact and use this. Um, and I was really inspired by this discovery, which I'm not mistaken, I learned from by uh, being in one of the uh, Slack accounts of AI and MIT. And this is what really inspired me. Uh, you could train a target to recognize movement in a source video. I think this example is more eloquent. And voila, you can turn target subjects that really don't know how to dance into elegant dancers. And couldn't that be an amazing promise that we could create an experience where you don't have to understand the rhythm of a rite of spring, you are a dancer as, you know, as part of the ballet. Uh, and we toyed with it a little bit. It forced us to rethink how we could have different users confined, uh, be part of the experience all at, at the same time. And I'm going to show you the trailer because it's going to be a little faster than me explaining uh, the project. But this is where we are now. This is a prototype. It's a trailer for the prototype. Uh, the project is not finished, of course. Uh, and I'll get to talk to you a little bit more about it.
So you've seen that the promise of the experience is to create a, a dance auto-tune system. That's how we label it for lack of better words. But the goal is that we're playing on something that is, again, very human. And it's our capacity for mimesis. Uh, when you see at the, at the end, if you'd like, of the experience, you see, I'm going to try to put my camera back on so you can see my hand gestures because <laughs> we're talking about dance. Um, when you see some characters, sometimes you feel like you're, you're by yourself in the experience and you're just puppeteering an avatar and the other avatars are dancing on their own. But at some simple moments when you are yourself dancing, uh, either even if you're just doing a flick of an arm, the system tries to combine and match your flick of an arm to an actual choreographed dance movement that, that we've recorded in a database of dance movements. So you feel like you are dancing like the dancer. The puppet that you're puppeteering in front of you, the avatar that you're puppeteering, uh, if you're moving just a little bit to the, to the right, the arm feels elongated. It feels like a natural uh, dance movement that seems to fall magically with rhyme with the music and with the other avatars and characters. And the more you interact with the dance, the more you feel like you're completely part of the choreography and you don't feel like you see the difference and discrepancy between the professional dancers and yourself. Um, the system is pretty simple. It really works like autotune. Uh, if you're, you, for, for those of you who know autotune, if you're not really singing to pitch, it will bring your voice to that pitch. It's a little bit the, the same, but what happens with mimesis? Mimesis helps us fill in the gaps. When our brain sees something that we feel is replicating what we're doing, that's what we're getting them to feel at the beginning of the experience. If it ends up moving a little bit higher than what we're doing, we will match that movement. We have a tendency to want to connect to other humans by mimicking what they're doing. Chimps do this all the time. When they see themselves, they will open their eyebrows to you say, well, I'm not a threat. And the other will also open their eyebrows a little bit to say, I'm not a threat. We are not taught that this comes from instinct. So this instinct of mimesis, we can use with the AI as a backbone to help increase the way people are dancing. So our little test that we've done so far with the prototype made us re recollect, again, the same lesson. We have an infinite power of make-believe. We humans are willing to pretend like we're dancing and really let ourselves go when the image that we're seeing matches what we're actually creating. And my second and final uh, lesson is I really felt um, inspired by this desire we have to connect. Uh, I think either by words, when we're trying to talk to Chomsky entity that we know is not real, and people really ask deep questions and try to en entice a real conversation, or with these you know, straw-like men characters that we created because it was just a prototype and still people are trying with our A-B testing that we have done so far, people are still trying to connect with them and see if they're real, if, they, if it's somebody else elsewhere and trying to match the movements. Um, so for me, it just highlights a human desire to connect that is enhanced by technology, but it's all the little glitches and mess messiness that we can bring with the AI that makes it feel the more real. So as a conclusion of these two different projects, I would say that what I, one thing that I'm learning, I'm working currently on other AI-driven now larger scale installation that is still in non-disclosure mode. And I hope next year I get to talk about it uh, because they're all gonna come out at the same time and I'm gonna be burnt out. <laughs> for the moment, everything is doing uh, well. But from these two different projects, it led me to think that between technology and carefully crafted storytelling, 
what really is key is not what we can create with the technology or not how well we're crafting the stories, but how well we tap into our capacity for human imagination. And that's what's at core of any immersion. Uh, as technological and immersive and even intelligent uh, technology keep developing, I hope to keep working on experiences that invite curiosity and play. And that can help us remember that ultimately, it's all about defining the world we want to live in with said technology. Uh, Noam Chomsky, AI, not Noam Chomsky, one of his made up answers from uh, past traces uh, that we've recreated with our AI system said, to us that we are the ones creating meanings. We are the force creating architectures of our future. So it's not a correctly English put phrase, but it does tell us something that Noam Chomsky strongly believes in. Uh, but he also believes that if you let yourself be amazed by these new technologies, you'll find the puzzles. And it's in the puzzles that we find inspiration for such projects. So it's a little bit of a mashup of different projects. Uh, but it goes to show you two extremes of using AI to either discuss AI or really using it as a backbone to help us do what we do best, connect to each other and connect through our imagination. So I would leave that as my conclusion for today's talk. And I hope I haven't uh, lost you all because I can't see the chat. I can't see if that's true. <laughs> now you can see the chat. You can see me see the chat. So I'll stop sharing for now. <laughs> So I can access the chat and see. Yes, Thank that's you. fabulous. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much. Um, I'm uh, I'm going to hold on. I need to change my viewing here too. Um, so questions, questions. Yes, Marvez. Hi, uh, thank you so much for your talk. It was really interesting. Um, I've been doing AI work uh, recently in my lab and I'm curious about the size of the data set you used um, in building uh, Chomsky AI. So the, the size that we used then and the size that we're using now. So the size that we used then, we literally had hundreds of thousands of uh, full answers and hundreds of thousands of questions. We didn't use all of that. So the prototype helped us narrow down to 7,000 questions and 5,000 answers. And this felt really, really limited. Uh, we didn't feel it would be enough to create compelling answers. But to our surprise, we didn't even go that far. That was our pool of data that we used. That's why I highlight the scripting uh, behind it. The, the goal was really not to create a Chomsky slash Siri that anybody could access at any point and it gives us uh, an answer that is relevant to what we're searching, for instance. Um, because it was an, still a narrative-led experience, it is an experience that tries to open a conversation. Um, a lot, as I was mentioning before, was scripted. So the first thing we started with was uh, a Q&I maker uh, and Q&I maker gave us, prompted us so many pre-scripted answers and every time that I saw the pre-scripted answer, so we had two modes, Q&A maker for chit chat, and then a more complex our Arnold conversational chatbot from these uh, 7,000 question and 5,000 answers. Um, and it didn't match. So what happened was a lot of the Q&A answers I ended up revisiting, and I don't know how many there are. I know they're in the hundreds, it's not in the thousands. I'm not sure if it's about 500 or 600. Uh, Q&A already made answers that Microsoft provides. 
and they didn't sound Chomsky-esque, you know, like uh, if somebody asked, how are you doing? He would say, live in the dream, you know, but sometimes he would use exactly that answer. And we added what I kept confusing everyone by calling handles. <laughs> what I mean by handles is just an onboarding and outboarding for this pre-scripted answer. Uh, so if you're asking him, uh, what is your name? He didn't exactly know what to answer, uh, but the, uh, let's say, scripted answer was, well, um, you could say that I'm an emulation of Noam Chomsky, and then he would fall into scripted uh, monologue of the character, explaining who he is, where he's from, and he would change the world, and you could understand that he's talking to you. Just the same like we're talking now. You asked a simple question, I started answering simply, and then I drift off into what I want to convey to you, right? So in a conversation, you have moments where you try to answer somebody's question, but you also just start to share. And that's where we had little uh, uh, scripted moments. Uh, but for the answers that were ready available by Q&A Maker, uh, we tried to add before and after some turns of phrases uh, that are very Chomsky-esque. For instance, um, starting with, um, well, um, just as simple as, you know, uh, and a lot of the answers we already had, if you hear them out, he has little uh, tweaks or ways of speaking like we all do um, that give away his way of speaking or his mannerism, that's the word I'm looking for. So we had little, what I call the handles or kind of mannerism that help you onboard a pre-scripted answer and outboard a pre-scripted answer and made it feel more like it was Chomsky-esque. That was a lot of scripting. We expected our database to be too small. And what we're doing now though, is what we presented at Sundance um, allowed us to really build up our, our database of questions. And so the new system that we're using now, GPT-2, we, did, we chose to, to, to steer away from GPT-3, which drove our team not super happy at the beginning because they were really excited about the type of answers that they could get. But from an ethical point of view, we're trying to highlight potential pitfalls of creating these emulations of who we are our, from our digital traces, uh, trying to deep fake one another, for instance. We didn't feel like pretending all the answers came from Chomsky himself uh, were relevant to the experience. So we stuck with GPT-2 and that enables us to at least try to learn how to answer better uh, the questions that are asked, but always with real Noam Chomsky answers or things he said in the past. So we're trying to limit it to that so we don't pretend we're Noam Chomsky. What we do is create answers from matched uh, snippets of answers. If that, yeah, if that is, is coherent. <laughs> I'm losing the thread of the question. See, I'm, I'm just there's, doing Chomsky AI myself. There's a, a question in the Q&A, um, specifically how and where can we interact with the Chomsky AI? I assume so where you could in interact with Chomsky AI, you could interact with him during Sundance 2020. And that was the beginning of a tour which included MIT libraries, included Geneva Film Festival, included many different pit, uh, pit stops that we had planned for, but COVID hit right after Sundance. We met, even made joke at Sundance that we were all going to fall sick from that so-called COVID disease we were hearing about on the news because we're all sharing headsets in a very confined space while at Sundance. That was February, 2020. And of course, everything stopped. It was our last travel. So that's for that. But in the meantime, we didn't lose any time. We're now working on the production of the full experience, which is the prototype or the prologue was really uh, testing how people interacted with the character. 
Now for the full experience, it's a multi-user experience where you get to interact with the same Chomsky character, but in a world that he builds around you. Uh, and this is going to be for public release in spring 2022. We have a NFB, NFB is the National Film Board of Canada. We have a release date and NFB, when they say you have a release date, it needs to be ready. Their release date is April, 2022, exactly. So keep posted, I guess, it's the right answer. I'll keep you posted, I'll try. Other questions, either from the Q&A bar, which is open or screen. I mean, I just have a, a, a kind of a comment, and that is that um, I think what's interesting in hearing you um, describe how you designed um, Chomsky versus Chomsky to interact with people, uh, how much it actually mirrors um, what I think of as, as kind of a humanistic pedagogy, which is you know, that, that often as a teacher, you when there's a question asked of you by a, a student in particular, um, often that student already has all the pieces of the answer, right? Um, and it's just a matter of kind of drawing, drawing that out um, in this kind of back and forth. And, and it seems to me that that's partly what you, you are tapping into here, right? That that the that the that the AI version of Chomsky is not a machine for answers, but a machine for getting you to find the answers. That was one of the best moments in the in the video that couldn't or didn't want to play that I was you know stuck uh, with and couldn't move to the next slide. Um, there was a video of a man that really uh, extensively stayed a long time asking questions of Noam Chomsky. So again, the experience works. Uh, you're encountering this entity that keeps morphing. Um, if you're not doing anything, it will take its time before it reveals itself to you. If you interact with it a lot, it will start asking you questions and creating worlds around you. But depending on the flow of your conversation, you could stay in chit chat for a while. Or if you start to ask it questions about, are you real Chomsky? What are you exactly? Where are you based? Uh, when people really try to, what I call break the system, they try to, to see behind the curtain of Oz, uh, in the curtain of us, like, uh, you know, who, who's hiding behind, that's when he starts storytelling uh, part of what he's made of, how, you know, some of the elements. And as you're saying, the goal is really to help us think about what we're hoping with these technologies. So the humanistic pedagogy is really helping an individual that's interacting with such a system think a little bit back. It's easy to find the flaws of these systems because they're full of them. So you start by finding the flaws and you're disappointed when you do. Uh, but I think there's a little bit of a magic when you ask people to take a step back and you ask, but what exactly are you wanting from it? And why do you want it to be specific? Why do you want it to be accurate? And you start to think differently about the technology. While we were creating the experience, um, so uh, full disclosure, I made jokes about having a toddler because maybe you're hearing her <laughs> at the moment. She just came back home with dad. Um, it was very strange because I kept hearing talks about uh, how the human brain is like, uh, you know, is, is like a machine's brain. And of course, we try, we make metaphors, it's normal. We try to create these metaphors because it helps us understand. And at the same time, so uh, 
the prototype lasted nine months. During these last nine months of prototyping, I was also pregnant. Uh, we presented at Sundance. It was three months after end of prototype. My baby was three months old. It was kind of a matchy-matchy trying to see the human versus the machine. And you really see how we don't learn the same way, uh, having worked on both prototypes at the same time. You see both living in artificial prototypes, really not working the same way, but you do understand the need for metaphors. They help us understand. So throughout the experience, I call this project the baby making machine because the lead developer went on paternity leave. Uh, the lead designer for the music went on paternity leave as well. We all felt like one after the other, we were either leaving on maternity leave or our paternity leave. And we all had the same kind of aha moment where we thought, okay, now I understand the real difference between what I'm seeing and how I'm explained how AI works. And instead of feeling like these revelations were limiting, it helped us love AI even more strangely. The more we were shown what it couldn't do, the more we're like, but then I could create music with this instead of feeling like AI had to be presented as the composer. Uh, suddenly our composer was a dad and he said, oh my God, it's so incredible. I know how I could use you know, certain elements of the data to really create a score in the background. And we all felt really inspired the more we learned about the limitations. So that's why I opened the second segue with this. It's not just because it's a catchy phrase. It was kind of a, we were all faced with uh, dilemmas of human life and artificial uh, entities that we're, we were building. And we always felt like the limitations of one helped us raise more questions. It's just more questions prompted more questions. So as you're saying with the humanistic pedagogy, it's a little bit bringing this back, I guess, to the public, making them think twice about why we're using the mind as a metaphor for AI. Why not an octopus mind? Why, why do we want it to reproduce human mind? Is it really more efficient for what we wanted to uh, do or create. And in some of the archives, I thought Noam Chomsky had a humor that I know of him, uh, that sometimes when he's prompted with repetitive questions, he decides to come up with a fully out there answer. I saw an interview where he's asked again about, you know, can machines think? And he answers, well, can chicken fly, you know, and can humans fly in the way they do? If you look at the record of long jumping, they fly better than chicken. And I thought, oh, he's hilarious. He has these reference that he's just trying to convey new metaphors. So in a nutshell, yes, Chomsky AI is a very humanistic <laughs> driven uh, pedagogical uh, character that tries to ask questions and prompt more questions. That felt a little bit like a politician's discourse and, and less of a, a truthful, straightforward answer. Other questions? Questions or comments, because or I'm comment. all for it. We're still in production. So uh, things that you feel are a little bit weird or not well explained are also welcome. I'm learning from your feedback as well, just like an AI. Rasheen. Oh, Hi, sorry. Um, I taught this webinar, so I was multitasking. So I'm sorry that I'm not fully, fully with, with, with video present. But thank you so much for this incredible talk and the updates on your project, Sandra. It was really nice to see. 
Um, just like a quick comment um, on the new projects. I felt it's really kind of having seen the uh, Chomsky project at Sundance on the before pandemic, um, it's, it's really nice to see how you are sort of reflecting on the AI and the possibilities and also the project itself, which actually creates a very interesting narrative on um, the use of AR or this sort of alter narrative, alternative narrative, uh, which is refreshing. And I think kind of like bringing it more as a collaborator, like bringing AR more as a collaborator or co-creator in this process. And you're sort of thinking about how um, you're, you're, you're constructing a, a relationship rather than just that sort of question and answer format that a lot of AI pieces will do is really beautiful. So I, I, I thought it really works also with the visuals and the way that you're building the, 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 this whole um, space and interaction. Um, so I'm looking forward to sort of see the, the next iteration of that. And also um, with, the, with the dance piece, it's quite interesting. You, you showed an, an image uh, of a bigger screen and this sort of, um, sort of lines and, and, and um, visuals kind of connecting bodies to that screen. So I was wondering where that sits in, in the, are you thinking about beside the virtual or um, work, is that going to be an installation? Like I was sort of curious about the formation of the dance piece and how it will be, what, what are your minds like thinkings around um, the presentation of that? There's nothing like boundaries, <laughs> as I was saying before. So it's, it's, uh, it's like a practice what you preach. You know, is it very wide? That's, that, sings, that sings it the best. Uh, practice what you preach really is the, I would say, have to say the mantra for Future Rights. So Future Rights, we started ideating the project pre-pandemic, uh, pre-even the end of, of Chomsky AI. And we were kind of dreaming up what we could create with the uh, Rite of Spring reinterpretation. And what I didn't have time to maybe highlight about Rite of Spring, um, I have myself seen some uh, reinterpretations of Rite of Spring. And what I feel in these different reinterpretations, what is um, inherent to the piece is that it, feel, it makes the audience feel like they are part of a sacrifice. That's why it was so... Uh, not well received in 1913. Uh, you do see somebody being picked up by a community. That person is ends up getting sacrificed, and the sacrifice is that person dances him or herself to that to death. And because we are put into a situation where we're watching a community uh, choose who or what gets sacrificed, it made people feel very uncomfortable. Long story short, I'm trying to uh, resume now. Um, COVID hit, we had to find new alternative ways to co-create and the initial goal for the experience was room scale, uh, uh, pardon, um, location-based, so in-situ installation where we would have live dancers and live performers and uh, multi-users in the same space. And the experience helped us play with uh, projections uh, your body in space and it really was kind of an overwhelming broad perspective on how we could 
use body and space, see each other move and dance and see live performance only in virtual reality. Um, and we were basing it from past experience that either Alexander Whitley had or myself, we've had himself as a choreographer where he felt if you really highly choreograph a piece in virtual reality and you ask users to dance, they will move until the performer steps in and then everybody stops moving and watches the show. Uh, I felt the opposite, that as a user of dance-based VR experiences, when you're asked to do certain specific movements, I get bored. I like to disrupt. <laughs> I like to be a little bit of a punk in these systems. And when I'm told too much what to do and now raise your hands and this is the choreography you need to follow, I feel you miss out on the sheer fun of interacting and trying to move to your own beat. Um, so our goal was let's take everything that we both feel is right about dance. Let's make sure we have an installation that enhances this and it's going to be location-based. But with confinement, we couldn't work on that at all. We couldn't work at a distance. We had to create a pipeline. That's why I mean, practice what you preach that I could test the system from my home. He could test the system from his home. Uh, his develop our lead developer, his um, partner in crime um, is usually in the same studio, but now is in Austria. We were all in different locations of the world uh, using a lot of the technology that creates problems in our relationships with nature in the first place. And we kept being confronted with our own choices. We can now co-create at a distance, but we know we're having repercussions on our environment. What do you do? Um, we kept talking about the sacrifices and the choices that we kept having to make and what we felt was good or bad for the creation of the project. And it forced us to rethink the project as a multi-format, one that can be accessed from simply a browser. So that's one of the formats that we are aiming for, one that can be accessed with a VR headset. Uh, but we worked, I'm not sure if this is recorded, how much of this I can now say, but we worked on a proprietary technology that is a simple toggle effect. So for each of the avatars that you're seeing in the experience, we can choose, I'm calling it a toggle effect. It's not literally a toggle, but it helps. Again, it's a metaphor. Uh, we can choose who's controlling it, either the user or the machine, but we can change machine by live performer. So for a location base, you could have live performers re really create an experience that is tailored for location base, but the current experience is aimed for people trying it from their house, either from a browser or through a headset. And we created this pipeline, not because we wanted to have yet new promises of democratizing the tool, uh, which is great, um, but to be really honest and truthful, we couldn't work all at a distance. We needed to find a pipeline where we could all try it from our homes. And that's what we found was the best solution for everyone. Having us uh, force ourselves to create something that we could try uh, individually made us rethink the full experience. So what you've seen was our first initial intention for an installation really location-based coming first and deriv derivatives coming later. Now the derivatives are coming in first. The fact that you can access it from your home is first location base comes in later. A little bit of a complex answer, but because I know Rakashin, I'm trying to. Thank you, that was wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much. Well, we are uh, a little past time. So um, unfortunately we're gonna have to say goodbye, but um, uh, thank you so much, Sandra, for, for sharing these two amazing projects. And, and yes, as they develop, um, as they're finished, as we're all able to be uh, 
in the same room together, um, we would love to have you back to, to experience some of this ourselves. So. And if, if I was mentioning, speaking of installations, the other project that is still an NDA, uh, that I can't really reveal what it is, but it's a large-scale large multi-station installation on, um, I'm going to just say this because it's the only thing that I maybe can't say, on our weird intertwined relationship with sexuality, erotism, and uh, data, uh, data that's driven to force us to rethink our binary codes of our own uh, biases so all this to say this is also going to be out uh, I'm guessing also end of spring 2022 so I would love to be back and talk about different elements of what AI can show us about ourselves and our our our, our binary perceptions of the world Thank you. Thank you guys. Thank you so much. And um, thank you everyone. Um, this is our uh, last session of the, the school year. So we will see you all again in the fall. Um, and um, thank you so much. Have a wonderful summer. Hey, and congratulations to all the, the students on finishing. <laughs> Indeed. Especially yes. the second year. So we're, we're going to miss having you around. <laughs> so, all right. Okay. Bye, everyone. We'll talk to you soon. Bye.